This is Vietnam in Boba. I'm Sen Nguyễn. When the extended lockdown in Ho Chi Minh City, also known as Saigon, made it more challenging for Lady Ling to stay, she decided to go back to her hometown in Quảng Trị Province in central Vietnam. While waiting for the train, the middle-aged woman told local media how sad she was and how much she would miss Saigon, her second home, and her five children, who are also migrant workers, but chose to stay back. This week on Vietnam and Boba, we look at internal migrant workers and try to figure out who and how important they are to the economy and society. Vietnam, which was one of the world's COVID-19 success stories last year, has been experiencing the worst outbreak since the end of April. Saigon of all cities is the biggest hotspot. By mid-October, it accounts for around half of the nation's 850,000 of cases and 80% of around 20,000 deaths. By the time this episode was aired, there has been signs of improvement with weekly downward trends in both cases and fatalities. Southern manufacturing hubs Bình Dương and Ho Chi Minh cities are the first and third biggest destinations for migrants. The outbreak has been hard on them. Many migrants didn't have enough food or they lost their job without any compensation or timely support from the local government. Many also faced forced evictions by their landlords because they could no longer pay rent. From around July, Saigon and other southern provinces have seen waves of migrants trying to leave even during the strictest lockdown when people were told to stay home. Some of them, like Madame Ling, were assisted by local authorities to return to their hometown. Government data shows between July and September 15, about 1.3 million migrants left the capital Hanoi, Saigon, and other southern localities. But the number can be much higher because the statistic I told you don't include the exodus of people leaving Saigon and its neighboring provinces when COVID-19 restrictions were lifted in early October. Images of those making the journey, many with children, on motorcycles piled with personal belongings have been shared widely on Facebook and TikTok. The migrant exodus illuminates one of the communities hardest hit by COVID-19. Globally, the spread of the disease has also dramatically increased the spotlight on migrants. But Vietnamese migrant workers' difficult conditions already existed before COVID, and it has become even more pronounced. Uh, I think that um, the pandemic is is something very abrupt and unprecedented, and the the challenges that the workers face economically and socially will continue to perpetuate as long as the pandemic goes on. That's Dong Phương Nguyễn. She's a visiting research fellow at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Adelaide, Australia. The Saigonese has conducted research on migrant workers in Vietnam since 2014, particularly long-term migrant workers in southern Vietnam who work in foreign direct investment and private sectors. The, the migrant workers that I talked to in my research, they um, 
they didn't earn a lot of, of money comparatively. And it depends on their family circumstances as well. But as long as they have some savings, they, they will try to remit some of those savings back to their family back in the hometown. And I guess the, the, because the, the saving or the money that they send back home is, is not much, it's the, um, economic benefits that the migrant workers bring to their hometown is mostly to, to help their family members, um, overcome poverty. They, uh, the family members can, can use the, the, the savings, the money that workers send back home for their household consumption. And with the, um, some of the workers, they also help their family members or relatives in the hometown to come to the province or the city where they work. So the industrial area where they work, where there are abundant job opportunities and that create a social network amongst the migrant workers. The social benefit, um, that, that the workers bring to their hometown, there's one social benefit which I think is quite significant is that the workers do have a lot of investment in their children's education and the benefit there is more about the Vietnamese society in general rather than just a specific, specific locations, right? So um, the most of the workers that I talk to, they uh, usually either attended secondary school or finished secondary school, which is from year six to year nine. But their children who are in the school age, they try to send the children to um, high school or even college and university. Of course, I don't suggest that their children will have a better future with a university or college degree. But the, the fact is that the reality is that their children in obtaining better skills and qualifications than the parents are more likely to find uh, a better job that earns them better income. And so I think the fact that the workers invest in their children's education is a positive thing that contributes to society in general. Migration played a key role in the making of Vietnamese economy when the country was one of the world's poorest around 40 years ago. In the 1990s, the government incentivized people to migrate to new economic zones while also moving from centralized market to market economy. You know what I'm talking about, the transformative reform policies of Doi Moi in 1986. Between 1999 and 2009, migration became even more common because of the proliferation of the economy and there were huge demands for workers in the industrial areas. Their internal migration patterns vary. People either move around within their local district, in their province, or between districts and to a larger distance between provinces. The rate of inter-province migration remains the highest throughout the census since 1999. The latest census in 2019 shows there are about 6.4 million internal migrants, or around 7% of the population. While the majority of them are between the age of 20 and 39, which reflects the country's workforce uh, demographic. More than half of them are female. Migrant labor researcher Du has something interesting to share about that. 
in, in a project that I did in 2018. I also interview um, younger workers who only have uh, a couple of years of work experiences. Um, and in my samples, um, certainly I, I reached out to more female workers than and male workers, basically because in the large manufacturing industries, the garment and footwear industries, there are more female than male workers. And I think my gender also played some part into it, because when I asked some of the key informants in my field um, about recruiting workers to the project, because they, they, they think that I'm a female, so I would be more comfortable talking to female workers. So they tended to um, introduce me to female workers rather than male. Uh, so yeah, that's a very quite interesting aspect <laughs> of my field work. <laughs> Is that an advantage or disadvantage, you would say? Um, I think um, it, the, the advantage or disadvantage depends on how you feel your project and how you frame it, I guess. So basically, I um, for one of the projects, I did want to reach out to more male workers, but um, certainly we need to acknowledge the limits or the practical limits of our research. Um, and with the projects that I did on gender discrimination, of course, the, the, the sample um, obviously should be on, on female workers. Of course, I also talked to male workers as well along the way to, to hear, to learn more about their experiences or their opinions. And for me personally, talking with female workers does have an advantage because, as I mentioned before, it's, it's not just uh, an assumption of my um, informants, but the reality is that female workers are, are comfortable sharing, more comfortable sharing with me their experiences. Actually, they provided me a lot of details, and it's not just the factual details, but they, they also put a lot of thoughts and sentiments into their stories as well. What do we learn from that 2018 sample of women from the age of 26 to 35 in southern province Dong Nai reflects a working system that discriminates against women and fails to empower them, not just in Vietnam, but many other countries as well. In the large manufacturing industry, the, the reality of gender discrimination is, is actually quite, quite complicated and complex. And gender discrimination usually unfolds in subtle and indirect manner or even unfolds within the shadow of the law. And I just want to give two examples so the audience is clear about what I mean by that. The first form of gender discrimination that I usually um, encounter is the employer's refusal to renew employment contract with female workers when the employer finds out that that female worker is pregnant. So normally, a worker when they come into the when they goes into the company, they and after they have worked for a couple of years, they would hope that the employer would renew their contract and to offer them permanent long-term contract so uh, to, to ensure their, their so, so to make them feel more secure in a job and make them more um, bonded with the company. But the female worker who happened to be pregnant at the, near the time that their contract is renewed, those female workers will not get that sense of employment security compared to other. So we know that it's, it's not explicitly a discriminatory practice, but it does disadvantage women workers as long as they take on their mothering and then care duties. And in reality, employer 
tries to um, how to say uh, use some kind of legal justification for their decision. For example, they can say that the female worker failed to satisfy the demands at work, failed to fulfill their tasks um, satisfactorily for a certain period of time. That's why the employer doesn't want to um, renew the contract. And as long as the employer decided to not to renew the contract with the female workers, they will give an, uh, an adequate notice to that female workers, which is about, um, which is within 15 days. And so everything is in compliance, uh, in compliance with the law. So for that reason, the female workers do not have any ground to contest that decision. But certainly, if we look at it, um, from a moral sense, the female workers do see it as un unfair and certainly um, putting them at risk in economic risk in the long term. The second form of discrimination is um, actually deriving from the intensive working culture of the light manufacturing industry. We know that the um, garment and footwear sectors are the assembly labor intensive industries, so everything needs to go very smoothly through the production line. And that put a lot of demands on the workers. They need to demonstrate regular attendances at work. Um, they need to be, of course, diligent and hardworking so to make sure that the tasks go smoothly between different production groups. In different companies, there are different policies that encourage workers' regular attendances and participation at work. Um, and the reward, of course, varies from places to places. And it's not much, but when we think about the fact that workers live on low wages, the, the reward money that they earn from you know regular attendance could mean a lot to them. You know, for, there, for example, they say that that could help them um, pay more for their children's food or um, to have a more fulfilling meal for their family, something like that. So female workers, as long as they are pregnant or as long as they are caring for their young um, children, um, children uh, within one year of their life, uh, those female workers find it hard to 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 fulfill their regular attendance requirements at the company and for that reason um, they either face the discipline of, uh, disciplinary, uh, disciplinary measures at the company or they quit their job and in that scenario um, the workers uh, lose their job they lose their income uh, because of their uh, mothering and care duties and there are no flexible working arrangements at the company for those groups of female workers. So most of the times when they negotiate their leave with their supervisors or life managers, um, their negotiation um, doesn't really play out in, in, in workers' favor. And usually workers will, will, will face a range of disciplinary measures at the workplace as a result of their absence from work. And so we can see that the intensive working culture of the light manufacturing industry somehow plays a role in disadvantage the women workers when they have to take on their mothering and care duties.
The problems too, just elaborated are shared by both female migrant workers and non-migrant workers. It is very common for migrants to rent when they move to another province. A common term in the South referring to this is fangjia, or rental unit. According to the latest census, a migrant's home is on average smaller in area than a non-migrant's home. One-fifth of migrants live in places smaller than 8 square meters. It doesn't take much imagination to know these are tiny spaces and not enough for a comfortable home that has everything you need, let alone for people with kids. Only 22% of migrants live in homes larger than 30 square meters compared to 30% of non-migrants. The, the main challenge of um, migrant workers is the fact that they, they live in the city with a, a lot of things to pay for. Um, so if factory work doesn't turn out really well, then the workers would tend to consider, first of all, doing their own business. So, for example, being self-employed or going back to their hometown and hoping that some something better will, will come up in the future. So I think with migrant workers, they have a couple of choices, but um, most of those choices we can see that don't really um, generate a lot of economic opportunity or income for them. And um, that cycle of precarious experiences continues to repeat itself. When we come back, I'm going to ask Tu to dissect the cycle of precariousness Vietnamese internal migrant workers find themselves in. Stay with us. This is Vietnam and Boba. I'm Sen Nguyen. I'm talking today with researcher Tu Phuong Nguyen, who studies labor resistance law, social change, and precarity with a particular focus on migrant workers in Vietnam. I asked Tu to tell me what she has found to be the most significant challenges that have not been resolved for years which prevent migrants from having better working experiences and living conditions. Um, the first challenge is to do with their wage. In Vietnam, the um Government raises minimum wage every year, but workers in the light manufacturing industry still struggle to live with their wages, even with overtime work. So the wage rise every year doesn't really catch up with the um, rise in the cost of living. And the, the story that I hear a lot from, from the workers is that, yes, um, the company raises wages for us every year, but um, at the same time, we also have an increased cost of fuel, rent, food, um, and there are also a, 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 a lot of other expenses that they have to be, um, take into account as well, such as uh, children's school fees and the food for the whole family. The second challenge is to do with workers' social security. The workers that I um, look at, most of them um, are having are having labor contracts with their companies, and as long as they enter into a labor contract, then they will participate in the state's compulsory social insurance scheme. 
that social insurance scheme requires contribution from both employers and employees. And the money that is contributed there will be used to pay for workers' maternity benefits and more importantly, the pension when workers retire. The challenge with that is that um, in, in many companies, the employer doesn't contribute their share of social insurance to workers' social insurance fund. And um, that actually affected workers' benefits when it comes to claiming their, their, their social insurance. The social security issue is also closely linked to the wage issue, as I mentioned before, workers live on a very low wages. Um, and some of the, the statistics done by the Vietnam General Confederation of Labor has shown that the current, current minimum wage only satisfies around 80% of workers' minimum living needs. Because of the low wages, uh, workers don't have a lot of saving, right? So the, the law on social insurance in Vietnam allows the workers to withdraw their social insurance money early within one year after they quit their job. So if the workers do not withdraw that money, then they can just con con continue to pay into that, that fund, social insurance fund, and then they get that money as a pension when they retire, as long as they have contributed to the fund for at least 20 years. So the pressing issue for the past um, 10 years has been that workers tend to withdraw their social insurance money early and by doing so, they forego the pension in their own age when they are no longer able to work. So I think that uh, reflects the precarious experiences of the workers. They don't have a lot of savings, and that's the reason. That's the reason why, when any economic or financial needs arise within their family, they have to um, resort to withdrawing the social insurance money, which is the buffer or the social safety net that is supposed to be used when workers retire. The third challenge is the legal challenge, and I would say that is also links to the previous two challenges that I just mentioned. And I think in Vietnam, the, the, the picture of employers' compliance with the law is quite mixed. Of course, there are companies that complying well that, that that are complying well with the law but there are many others that violate the law and the violation is to do with a, a whole range of issues including wages social insurance as long as um, as well as other individual issues such as the workers contract and so the lack of legal protection or inadequate legal protection add to the precarious experiences of the workers and um, they even disadvantage uh, vulnerable workers groups such as the elderly workers and as well as pregnant workers or female workers who are caring for their young children. Over the year, the Vietnamese government and the union have also come up with measures, soft and hard measures, to um, force businesses to comply with the law. Um, but, you know, the progress has been quite slow and there has been ongoing practical challenges in putting the law into practice. Right. 
you mentioned that the wages of the migrant workers in the areas that you focus on, the light manufacturing industry in particular, they have quite low wages. How low are we talking? Um, what is the wage range compared to the region? Um, most of the workers' wages, um, as far as I know, are in the range of uh, five to seven million dollars a month. And I don't have the, um, the exact statistics on the regional picture, but, um, as a regional, reasonable, sorry, as a reasonable person living in Vietnam, and ha we, we can compare that amount of money to, um, the living cost that we need for each month. And bearing, just bear in mind that with the migrant workers, they also have to pay for their, rent for their rent as well which uh, usually costs about 20 or more percent of their um, income monthly income and the withdrawal of um, social insurance also reflects the fact that the migrant workers have um, a, a sense of a kind of uncertainty or precarity living in the city where they live they have a choice of, you know, going back to their hometown and investing in their own business. So they can use that social insurance money that they withdraw in order to um, do something else for their income generating activities rather than to engage in actually work. So it, it, it does reflect um, a very complex picture and is to do with workers' livelihood strategies rather than just the, some of the immediate challenges that they face within cities where they live. What do you think would be the consequences of these unresolved issues? I think the consequences are mostly to do with the um, human development aspect. So certainly the workers, migrant workers come to the city with an expectation to earn a better income for themselves and their family. And they do take advantage of a lot of opportunities from um, investment and development in the city and the provinces that they move to. But at the same time, they also face a number of challenges as we have mentioned before. And that um, does affect the quality of life as well as their children's education. For example, you know, a family with um, two young children, they have lived in the city for a couple of years, the children are enjoying some good education there, but then suddenly the parents decided to move to the rural areas when the schools in general are not as um, good quality as the schools in the cities. I'm just saying in general, right? So because there um, are different um, um, aspects to that as well. So we, we can see that the, the children's education does not follow on until um, they reach their university or college degree or they can, um, they, they can be disrupted to some extent. Uh, the other challenge, uh, sorry, the other consequence that I, I think is um, a, a long-term challenge to, to the uh, Vietnamese government. So if uh, a number of legal, uh, social, economic issues are not resolved and especially the fact that 
legal violations at companies continue um, for a while, then workers will take action among themselves. They will mobilize strikes and protests. And even though the government for the past 10, 20 years have considered strikes and protests as um, normal developments of employment relations, and the government in general is also sympathetic to the workers when they go on strikes or when they launch protests. Strikes and protests are still considered something problematic to social and political stability in Vietnam. I think that the government doesn't doesn't want to have that um, when they when they sell the image of Vietnam as a country with industrial harmony to foreign investors. Um, and the third uh, issue, the, the third consequence, I think is is quite uh, self evident, which is to do with social inequality. Right. So, um, as I mentioned before, the migrant workers. Precarious experiences will continue as long as any um, challenge that they face at work or in life is, is not resolved. And over a long term, the, the gap between people who earn more and the people who earn less within society will become bigger. And that perpetuates um, the situation of inequality in Vietnamese society. I think the um, the challenges that migrant workers face in the destination cities and provinces have been noted for a long time in a lot of policy documents, a lot of uh, reports by NGOs in Vietnam and international organizations in Vietnam. They raise the challenges, but and, and I do think that the government is aware of that, but there haven't been any concrete or systematic kind of intervention to address the issue and because of that we um, we we have we have those kind of issues and challenges going on for for, for years and I don't think that um, with the with the workers themselves for that will not deter the workers from continuing to seek new economic opportunities in in the cities but uh, they they will end up in um, how to say a situation of um, you know precariousness when the the opportunities or the thing that they expect to gain from moving from out of their hometown do not match up with their expectations. In the context of the pandemic, is it obvious to say that it has made their personal and working life conditions more challenging moving forward? Yes, certainly. Uh, I think that um, the pandemic is is something very abrupt and unprecedented, and the the challenges that the workers face economically and socially will continue to perpetuate as long as the pandemic goes on. The the workers with um, the labor contract they have certain contribution in the social insurance fund. They have some kind of social safety nets. They will fare better. But given the um, severity of the pandemic and the fact that production and employment have been stalled for a while, um, even those who have 
social acceptance, they 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 will they will certainly struggle. And I think we I think I mentioned uh, earlier about the the fact that workers try to withdraw their social insurance money early within one year after they quit their job. I don't have the recent statistics, but my guess is that the pandemic will um, contribute further to more numbers trying to withdraw the social insurance money. And even in the news, there have been reports of workers trying to do so through illegal measure, through um, informal measures. So instead of uh, claiming that money within that one year, then they um, somehow connected with a broker in an intermediary that allowed them to withdraw that money uh, within less than one year after they actually quit their job. Certainly, the, the pandemic and the pressing financial and economic demands that the workers face when they lose their income, when they don't have um, they don't have they don't have the opportunity to earn as much as they can before that, they'll certainly contribute to um, workers already vulnerable and precarious situation. Remember when I told you at the beginning of the episode about migrants leaving Ho Chi Minh City in the middle of a lockdown? There were concerns about risk of infection spreading, which prompted the local government to stop them from leaving. In one public confrontation with local officials, a man was demanding the city to take care of his migrant workers as he stood among hundreds of others who were trying to flee the city that day in mid-August but got stopped by the police. We want the Saigon government to guarantee our lives to stay on Saigon land, the middle-aged man said, still wearing his mask and helmet when moving his hand with vigor. Behind him was a crowd of migrant workers sitting on their motorbikes with their backpacks and belongings, some of them with children. And secondly, there must be food for us to eat just day by day, he finished his request. The local officials was heard trying to calm the man down and told him and his family to go back to their rental unit and the authorities will send food to them. While migrant workers are vital to the economy, their efforts might not be as socially and politically appreciated as they should. Some argue that migrant workers earn wages in bigger cities like Saigon. The city itself contributes one-third of the state budget, which is then redistributed nationwide. And the beneficiary localities are the hometowns of these very same migrant workers. Plus, migrant workers also benefit from the incomes they earn and send remittance to their families who also benefit from that. Is that one of the reasons why their efforts and contribution to our society have been taken for granted and insufficiently documented? Yes, I think I think you're right um, on that point. As far as I know, there's incomplete statistics and studies on the economic benefits of, of migrant workers to uh, the, the provinces and cities that they migrate to, as well as in their hometown. So we 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 don't we don't really know how much that contributes exactly. Their their remittance, the money that they send back to their hometown, contributes exactly 
to poverty reduction, for instance, in in their hometown. And I guess uh, the fact that it is taken for granted is is because of the political economy situation in Vietnam, when we have highly developed industrialized cities and provinces, and other less developed um, see, uh, provinces and cities in the rural area. So to some extent, I, I, I am thinking of the, the workers as the north in the distribution of development and wealth from the big cities and provinces to the less developed areas. And I, I think you're right in pointing out that our, I think that is the one, one of the reasons why workers' contributions uh, is, is taken for granted and there has been incomplete uh, investigation and study into that. What would be a long-term solution? The solution that I have in mind is um, something really uh, ambitious, I guess. A lot of the workers, uh, a lot of the challenges that the workers face come back to their low wages. It's a, it's a low wages that make them feel um, insecure in, for example, continuing to work in a factory for a long term. It's the low wages that um, do not give them a lot of saving, and that's why they have to resort to their social insurance money or their pension money when they need it the most. Um, so the solution, I guess, is to create a, a, a wage system that somehow meets the demand of the workers. And it's not just to do with the legal minimum wage mechanism that the Vietnamese government has had in play, but it is also to do with the um, collective bargaining system at the workplace. Currently, the collective bargaining system at the workplace um, doesn't really function, to be honest, um, because the, the, the union at the workplace doesn't play a very good role in representing workers' voices and interests, and therefore they cannot um, act as a workers' representative when it comes to wage or any benefit issue. So I think a better collective bargaining system would allow workers to come into more effective and substantial dialogue with the employer. Um, that have a, a, a number of benefits uh, if, we, if we bring that into practice that would improve the employment relationship and um, as long as the workers are, are, are happy then you know they will contribute more to the business and over the long term the workers will will feel a sense of security or stability working and living in, in the cities that they migrate to. In reality, uh, a lot of companies actually pay workers more than the minimum wage because in, in large manufacturing industries, it is usual to see workers work over time and of course they get extra uh, extra money with that. So workers do earn in reality, workers do earn more than the minimum living wage, but they they still struggle, especially um, workers who have family, who have children. COVID-19 has already transformed migrant experiences in ways that will produce inequalities, or rather deepen them. But it should also be an opportunity for us to be more socially aware of their aspirations for employment security, better working conditions, and most importantly, a dignified life. 
Du Feng Nguyen is a visiting research fellow at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Adelaide. She's the author of the book Workplace Justice, Rights and Labor Resistance in Vietnam. Chị Tú, thank you for joining me today on Vietnam in Boba. This episode was edited by me and produced by Zhang Pham. Zhang is our executive producer of Vietnam and Boba and he cares deeply about multimedia storytelling. I would also like to pay tribute to Kelly Võ. Kelly is the host of Dear A Community, a Vietnamese language podcast with a mission to empower young people in Vietnam. She was a fierce supporter of Vietnam and Boba in its infancy and helped lay the foundation of the show. Thank you, anh Zhang and chị Kelly. For more Vietnam and Boba, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. This is our first episode and we can't wait to connect with you all. If you like it, please tell one friend about it and help them subscribe to our show. I'm Sen and this is Vietnam and Boba. <laughs>